Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump as both the arsonist and the fire brigade, as he inflames his base with attacks on the FBI for their execution of a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago a week ago, describing it as, quote, a sneak attack on democracy, which has caused, quote, a great simmering anger at the same time reaching out to the Attorney General to warn him that, quote, the country is on fire, what can I do to reduce the heat? Joining us is Sarah Kenzio, the New York Times best-selling author of The View from Flyover Country. She is known for her coverage of the 2016 election and her academic research on authoritarian states, the co-host of the acclaimed podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa. She was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her latest book is The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. And her forthcoming book out in September is They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Then we'll examine the threat to journalists in our hemisphere in Mexico from murderous drug cartels and in Nicaragua from the dictator Ortega and his wife who have shut down the opposition press while jailing or forcing into exile hundreds of journalists. Joining us is Natalie Southwick, the Committee to Protect Journalists Latin America and Caribbean Program Coordinator. Prior to joining the Committee to Protect Journalists, she was a member of Witness for Peace's international accompaniment team in Bogota, Colombia, a reporting specialist with the Afro-Colombian and Indigenous Program, and the editor of a website focused on Latin American news. Her work has appeared in the Boston Globe, The Chicago Reporter, Inside Crime, Rio One Watch, and elsewhere. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Sarah Kenzio, who is the New York Times bestselling author of The Views from Flyover Country. She is known for her coverage of the 2016 election and her academic research on authoritarian states, and she's the co-host of the acclaimed podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa, and was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her latest book is Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, and her forthcoming book out in September is They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Kenzio. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, over the weekend, apparently Donald Trump, according to the New York Times, through an intermediary, reached out to the Department of Justice to get a message to the Attorney General that the country is on fire. What can I do to reduce the heat? And then he went on Fox News to say that he had made this offer to the DOJ uh, and added that he thinks that they would want the same thing. But this is after he's also spent the weekend retweeting QAnon conspiracies 
and racist Pepe the Frog tropes, along with bashing the FBI as a criminal enterprise, corrupt, seditious and abusive, and referring to their execution of a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago as a sneak attack on democracy and saying it's had the result of causing a great simmering anger in the public. Well, does this Trump being both the fire brigade and the arsonist? Yes, I think so. People need to be very wary of this story because the primary source of information about the Mar-a-Lago raid has been Trump. And, you know, Trump has been a master of media manipulation for 50 years, starting in the New York tabloids, going into reality TV, then social media. Uh, He's very adept at manipulating mainstream media as well. Uh, And there hasn't been, you know, an enormous number of details given to us from the DOJ, who are, in my view, untrustworthy in their own reasons. But nonetheless, you know, you could understand why an ongoing FBI investigation would lack details, uh, especially when this heated. But that means that it's people either in Trump's corner or Trump himself giving information, including relatives of his uh, current and former crime partners, lawyers who are often also crime partners. So, you know, there's a number of individuals who I think will tell people things, will tell the public things because of their own personal interests, uh, not in the name of the truth. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to see how this how this plays out, because as of now, it's it's hard to analyze it because you're just, you know, parsing this morass of uh, BS for the truth. Well, he is clearly, an, as you point out, an expert in manipulating the media, and he got elected on something like $5 billion worth of free media from the mainstream press. So do you think, though, that there's a possibility that he who lives by the tabloids will die by the tabloids? It would definitely be interesting. I'm kind of wondering, assuming that, you know, the basic facts of this are true, whether he who lives by the tabloids will die by the National Archives, because I think it's very interesting that it's the National Archives who, uh, you know, launched this legal pursuit of their property, because an archivist is going to be somebody who knows the extensive, well-documented criminal background of Donald Trump and his cohort, which the media has played down or ignored um, or covered up, uh, especially starting with his uh, 2015-2016 presidential campaign. Um, You know, so that's interesting. I don't necessarily trust the mainstream media to uh, get this right, both because they rely on Trump um, and his own, you know, statements, which so far lack uh, secondary evidence is happening right now as I speak to you. You know, he's claimed that they've uh, snatched his passports and there's not yet um, evidence besides Trump's uh, tweets on his truth truth social account uh, to back that up. And, you know, again, you know, I'd be wary of what the government says as well. I just hope that any information that comes out is viewed in the broader context of Trump's uh, criminal history and his history of obfuscation, uh, his history of illicit ties. Like there's a big, broad, decades long story that often is ignored in favor of uh, short lived scandals or minutia or legalese or things that kind of take away from the fact that, you know, we had a career criminal 
Kremlin asset president with longtime links to organized crime in a position of power with access to classified information and not even the most baseline loyalty to country for four years. And that's going to have enormous repercussions. And a lot of folks don't seem willing to tackle those repercussions head on. So Trump did announce today that the FBI seized three of his passports, one of which was expired. So do you think the other one was a Russian passport? No, I mean, I'm I think the most like, <laughs> well, it's not, the thing is, though, is like, there's nothing that's really off the table. Like, I, I encourage people not to accept things, uh, you know, out of hand, but I also encourage people not to dismiss anything because with this group of individuals, a lot of things that seem really wild, uh, really improbable. And that being true, I mean, my guess is, is if they did take his passports, and this is not just something Trump made up uh, to inflame his base, which, as you pointed out, is what he's been doing from the very beginning, you know, trying to goad them towards active violence. If they took it, it's probably because, you know, when you're in that position as president, you have multiple documents, which are technically uh, government property, and I could easily see Trump not returning them. Uh, but you got to think, you know, this is a guy who's been hooked up to, you know, the wealthiest plutocrats and oligarchs in the world, who has an enormous number of, you know, private jets at his disposal. Uh, If he were to leave the country, which I doubt he wants to do, uh, because he's generally uncomfortable in those types of situations, I don't think he'd be thinking about a passport. (laughs) He wouldn't be like, gosh, I better do this legally. I better go through proper channels and follow protocol. Like, when has he ever acted like that. So that's why I'm kind of thinking this whole passports sure. thing is, is not an issue. Sure. Well, I'm, I suspect that if it came to the crunch, Putin has a, has a Gulfstream jet somewhere in Florida to whisk Trump off to Cuba. But in terms of inflaming Trump's base, and particularly the militia types who are heavily armed and who, who are calling for civil war, and, and in, in all these alt-right and right-wing chat rooms, there's nothing but talk of civil war. So you've got a big chunk of the country, I don't know what the numbers are, but are actually already preparing for a civil war against you and me and everybody that we know. We're not preparing for it, we're not getting armed, but they are. So there's an asymmetry there, is there not? Yeah, uh, to some degree. I mean, I think, you know, when when people think of the phrase civil war in the U.S., they often think of the 19th 19th century civil war, this kind of demarcation between North and South. And what I think we'll see, and we started to see uh, some of it last week, and we certainly saw it in previous uh, events like the January 6th Capitol attack, are things more akin to Uh, you know, what Timothy McVeigh did in the 1990s of armed militia groups uh, attacking federal buildings uh, with bombs, you know, shooting at officers. Uh, You know, they're already listing the uh, agents, the individual agents who uh, they're claiming were responsible for the Mar-a-Lago raid, encouraging people, um, you know, to commit acts of violence towards them. This follows, you know, the entire Trump presidency in which judges were threatened, uh, lawyers were threatened, public servants were threatened, you know, so many private citizens were threatened as a result of Trump and his crime cult. And, uh, you know, there were very few repercussions for those threats. They got away with making them on the whole. And the elite operatives who planned January 6th, people like Roger Stone or Michael Flynn and so forth, the coordinators of it, they are still walking around free while these very low level operatives who, you know, probably did not uh, pose a great threat to the security of the United States, um, you know, they're the ones who are 
doing prison time, although generally speaking, it's very short sentences, um, you know, especially compared to people who commit crimes that are not uh, sedition. And so the whole thing has, I think it's really empowered this movement, the lack of accountability uh, for, you know, Trump and his cohort has empowered people to think, no matter what I do, I'm not going to get in trouble for it. And I may even be rewarded. You know, they look at somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, who killed two people and was treated like a folk hero by this group of individuals. And so all of that contributes to an environment where committing acts of violence is seen as less risky if you're doing it on behalf of Trump. And Trump absolutely capitalizes on this and he encourages this uh, through his social media posts. And Sarah, Kenzie, you mentioned that there's already been a backlash in terms of uh, Trump's supporters fed by what happened clearly was that Trump got the only unredacted copy of the search warrant that the FBI handed to him or handed to his lawyer at Mar-a-Lago on Monday evening a week ago. That unredacted search warrant was transmitted to Breitbart News and in the unredacted version it has the names of the FBI agents and already as you've said that there have been threats against uh, FBI agents and their families as well. So do you think that Trump's statement that he put out today, that he tried to reach out to the DOJ saying, the country is on fire, what can I do to reduce the heat? I mean, obviously, as I say, he's both the arsonist and the fire brigade. But do you think some some sober voices in the Republican Party have talked to him and said, we don't want dead FBI agents, it's not going to be a good look for the party of law and order? Uh, I mean, it's possible that some of them said that. I doubt that he'd really care. I think his statement to the DOJ, assuming he made it, was more like, you know, hey, you know, nice country you got there. It'd be a real shame if something happened to it. Like, it's a it's a threat. It's a threat that more violence is coming and that they'll continue, uh, you know, he will continue and his followers will continue threatening, uh, you know, officials unless they give him what he wants. And it's more, you know, what he wants is not entirely clear because he's led an entire life uh, with elite criminal impunity, free from prosecution, even though he's been under investigation uh, since the late 1970s, including by the federal government numerous times before he ran for president. And a lot of those investigations uh, were buried. Some of them were ongoing in 2015 and stopped uh, when he became president. So there's a lot of shady stuff going on when you look at Trump's relationship with the FBI over you know the last 40 to 50 years. They've often acted as his protector. Uh, there might have been some favors traded given the circles that Trump ran in uh, in New York City. You know, and there's definitely some disturbing stuff involving heads of the FBI who then went on to work for the same Russian mafia with which Trump is affiliated, uh, Louis Free and um, and William Sessions, uh, who are directors in the 1990s, both went on to do that. Um, that said, I do think there are probably FBI agents who are trying to do their jobs, who are trying to hold uh, criminals accountable and who may be involved in this investigation, in this raid, and they're up against you know a pretty powerful force with Trump. Uh, and so he's going to do everything possible to protect himself. You know, he's a paranoid person. He's an insular person. And he gets off on this, too. You know, he likes being the center of this big circus. He likes being 
the sole person to control the narrative of it and force everybody to react to everything he's saying, whether it's about the warrant or the passports or what have you, because he knows the DOJ is unlikely to come out with the full truth uh, of what's happening at this time or possibly ever. Well, over the weekend on True Social, Trump tweeted out that the FBI has a long and unrelenting history of being corrupt and it's even nothing has changed except it's gotten worse. Look at Comey, McCabe, Strzok and lover Lisa Page. Well, if you add Bruce Orr to that list, McCabe, Strzok, Lisa Page and Bruce Orr, all of whom have been demonized and attacked by Trump, that represents almost the entire top cadre of the FBI's counterintelligence knowledge on Russian organized crime and Trump's Mm -hmm. connections to Russian organized crime. So he clearly targeted those people from day one. Oh, yeah. He he purged them. He purged the FBI, and that was completely predictable. And so now those individuals uh, who did know the most um, are out, you know, writing books and being political commentators and whatnot. And I haven't heard a lot of discussion about what's happened now that uh, it's a different administration. And, you know, Biden could potentially fire Christopher Ray. There's plenty of cause for that. Uh, current FBI director Christopher Ray and hire more people to investigate Russian mafia activity. And I think it's kind of interesting and alarming um, that that hasn't happened. But yeah, you know, it was expected that Trump would do what any aspiring autocrat would do, which is you purge agencies, you pack courts, you rewrite the laws so that you're, you know, no longer considered to be breaking them. He's trying to do that now where he has lackeys like Rand Paul saying that they should get rid of the Espionage Act so that therefore Trump would no longer be committing espionage. And, you know, the thing is, it's like some of these critiques of the FBI are completely valid. Like the FBI is deeply corrupt. It does have a long history of harassing private citizens on baseless grounds. And the Espionage Act has been abused toward people like, say, Reality Winner. But the thing is, you know, when you commit espionage, like, That's why there's an Espionage Act. This is a merited cause. When you take classified documents allegedly related to, you know, nuclear materials and you stash them in your house for 18 months and refuse to give them back, that is a merited basis for an FBI raid. And so for once, the FBI are actually wielding power properly. So, of course, that's the time when Trump comes out and says, oh, woe is me, the FBI is so corrupt, because most of the time they've just acted as his protectors, um, You know, which is what, another reason I'm kind of suspicious of the entire narrative that he's creating, because all of this is, is just wildly out of character for pretty much everyone involved. And I'm continuing the conversation with Sarah Kenzio, the New York Times bestselling author of The View from Flyover Country. She is known for her coverage of the 2016 election and her academic research on authoritarian states and is the co-host of the acclaimed podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa and was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her latest book is Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. And her forthcoming book out in September is They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. So... We know that there's this entire right-wing echo chamber. Without Murdoch and and Fox, I don't think we'd have anything like the problem we have with Trump and and the authoritarian 
GOP that he's taken over and who are now working assiduously to create a one-party state in America on the lines of Orban's Hungary. I don't think any of that would be happening without the massive propaganda machine at his disposal uh, and along with the minor copies of Fox like Newsmax and AON. So along with that, is there a kind of alt-right network of Trumpsters in the government? I mean, we can see that the Secret Service has been taken over by Trumpsters, given the activities of uh, Tony Leonardo and the head of the uh, Secret Service, Murray, who Ornado suggested for the job, which was first offered by Trump to Ornado, and that all of the text messages relating to January the 6th have all mysteriously disappeared. So I'm wondering whether it's possible that there are Trumpsters in the DOJ, well, there may be some in the DOJ, but certainly in the DOD, and elsewhere in the government? Yes, I I think they absolutely are, you know, and we've seen evidence of it, as you just said. And, you know, along with purging the FBI, um, as we mentioned before, of the Russian mafia experts and so forth, uh, you know, I assume that he packed it because why wouldn't he? You know, we saw him packing the courts. We saw him putting his relatives into positions of power uh, in the White House. We saw him putting cabinet members, relatives, other people uh, who were not qualified for their jobs, but who had unending loyalty to him in these positions. And so this is important enough. Uh, You know, it's not just Trump making these decisions, by the way. It's, you know, all of his advisors, people like Roger Stone that have followed him his whole life, uh, you know, Michael Flynn, Bannon, et cetera. A whole apparatus is behind him. And they're not going to screw up where it counts, which would be, uh, you know, taking over the FBI and DOJ from within to make sure that they get away with crimes, like appointing Bill Barr, who is known all the way back in the early 1990s as the cover up general for the Republican Party uh, was another step in that direction. I mean, basically, you know, you brought up Fox News, like Fox News and the, the Rupert Murdoch empire was created to ensure that. Watergate could never happen again to any Republican uh, official, you know, to any Republican president, that there would never be a Woodward and Bernstein type investigation that could bring a president down because there'd be this enormous propaganda apparatus behind it uh, to counter it and to, you know, sort of scare people out of telling the truth, etc. And they made those same precautions in government. That's how they got away with the Iran-Contra affair. That's how they got away with the illegal war on Iraq. That's how a lot of uh, Wall Street people tied to the government got away with their crimes. You know, it's very, the very well-honed system. And on top of that, I think they don't want to admit um, embarrassment. Like, even when there's not outright malice. I don't think that these institutionalists want to admit how weak and uh, easily corrupted our institutions are, and that somebody like Trump, you know, a game show host mafioso, could come in and just bulldoze the whole apparatus. And all of that ego, I think, is coming back to haunt them. But I know you you, you were on MSNBC the other day with Peter Strzok, and I spoke with him last Tuesday. And the question is, why didn't somebody stop him? I know, I know that the FBI, through their counterintelligence files, have enough smoking guns to put this guy away for life. But those files are highly classified, and particularly because of sources and methods. So I don't understand why he's gotten away with it. You know, going back to his trip to Moscow in July the fourth of nineteen eighty-seven. 
starting just starting from them coming back and taking out full-page ads, pushing Soviet propaganda and the New York Times, the Washington Post and the uh, Boston Globe, and then all the money laundering that went on through Brighton Beach, the Russian mafia, into both Atlantic City and into Trump Towers and buying condos, etc. All of the, the files through Deutsche Bank, etc., on how the Russians kept him alive, kept him on the back burner until he was useful. Uh, they pulled the trigger, for, you know, eventually when he was in Moscow on, for Miss Universe, sent him back to the U.S. to start the the Bertha scandal to start the divisions in America to bring back racism, to make it okay to be racist again. All of these things, of course, are part of the Soviet and the Russian strategy and Putin strategy to d- divide America and turn, turn us against each other. And Trump has been the perfect instrument and the gift that keeps on giving. So all of this is, and of course, you covered what happened in 2015 and 2016. Again, for the life of me, I don't understand why the Democrats couldn't have stopped him and exposed him. Mm-hmm. Biden, tr- I mean, Obama did try, and neither McConnell or Paul Ryan would cooperate. Uh, and, of course, Obama was operating on real intelligence that came from a CIA mole inside the Kremlin and not this bogus uh, dossier that they keep harping about, the, the Steele dossier. So, you know, just again, the, the, this is a whole story of, of what is wrong with this why can't we stop this this ridiculous person who is so so mobbed up and such a wannabe crime boss and a celebrity and I mean he's you'd have to scour the country to find a human being worse than this guy and on top of that he's he's a kind of a travesty of a millionaire you know I mean he's not even a billionaire never has been I mean it's the whole thing is such a fraud and I know you've written about it in the invention of Donald Trump, and of course, nobody more than Donald Trump invented Donald Trump. So, mm-hmm. is there an explanation? I know you've written a book about it. So, yeah, <laughs> have... I mean, it's it's really frustrating, and it's actually somewhat gratifying to hear you recount this because so many media outlets and officials won't admit half of what you just said. You know, provable facts about Trump's cultivation by the Kremlin, like starting with that July 4th, 1987 visit, provable facts, like all of the Russian mobsters or mobsters from the former Soviet Union uh, who propped up his businesses, who bailed him out of bankruptcy, to whom he owed great favors. Like this history is all documented in the public domain. Like you don't even need, uh, you know, classified information or secret files. He confesses to it frequently, just like he confessed to obstruction of justice twice on television and they still won't act. And so when so many people won't admit the basic facts and won't act to protect the basic sovereignty and national security of the country, you know, you have to wonder why, because you would think it's at least in their self-interest. Like, for example, for the Democratic Party, it would be in their self-interest, one would think, to tell the truth about Trump and about his crime cohort, because one, it, you know, it's, it's a threat to us all, but also they're running against him. Like, this is information that could have ostensibly helped them win, but they suppressed it. They also focused excessively on scandals when there were real crimes out there. I mean, Hillary Clinton did bring up these crimes, uh, but the media largely dismissed her. They thought she was being hyperbolic, um, you know, and they focused on 
minutia instead. But now that we're at the point where none of this is hypothetical, there's no more what's the worst that can happen. Like we saw it. There was an attempted you know, violent coup. There was sedition. There is the purposeful, uh, you know, spreading of a plague, allowing COVID to spread. There was endless acts of kleptocratic theft, mafia ties, bowing down to autocrats, destroying Western alliances, like, you know, all the worst things that we thought could happen did happen. So you would think the urgency would be greater now, especially now that the Democrats have the reins of power in the presidency, the Senate and the House. And they're still not acting to contain what is a threat to all of America, not just a threat to liberals or Democrats, the threat to Trump's own supporters. Because when our society crumbles like this, when our basic institutions are being gutted, cannot be relied upon, when mass violence is increasing, when political violence has become streamlined, that threatens everybody. And they're very timid. So I don't know if they've been threatened into silence or complicity, which is you know possible, certainly, or if they were complicit all along. And in particular, uh, a lot of people at the top rungs of Biden's cabinet, like, for example, Merrick Garland, may well have been installed to do nothing, to run out the clock until the Republicans come back. I definitely don't think all the Democrats are complicit. Like you see people really trying to fight back from, you know, within Congress, some of the members of the January 6th committee and so on. But the top people are just not acting like this is the urgent crisis with a long documented history that it is. They're instead talking about, you know, infrastructure plans. And I'm kind of like, you know, how did we get treason to be normalized? How did we get stealing nuclear secrets and hiding them in your Florida compound like to be a, a, a news story that lasts like 48 hours? Like this is nuts. This is so crazy. So I have a lot of questions, but do not necessarily hold uh, the answers. Unfortunately, I've been asking these questions now for, you know, seven years. Well, you just mentioned, though, Sarah, that uh that he deliberately allowed the pandemic, what would the motive be there? I think he sees a depopulated and chaotic America as advantageous to his political objectives, not just him. You know, he's surrounded by people who are accelerationalists, people like Steve Bannon that actively root for the destruction of the country, uh, the, you know, um, decapitation of the federal government. He's also surrounded by some people who, either believe the rapture is coming or want to help bring it about. People like Mike Pompeo, you know, who was in the government at the time, I think a lot of them want civil war. They want partition. They want secession. They love divisive uh, issues. Masking, vaccines, et cetera, became incredibly divisive. Um, you know, it prompted some secessionist movements to grow. All of that, you know, they, they have kleptocratic and, you know, uh, motives on top of everything. And I think their ideal United States would be a U.S. divided into a bunch of feuding oligarch fiefdoms that then would, you know, war with each other over resources and property with the gains going to, you know, the biggest plutocrat in that part of the country. I don't think they care at all about the survival of the United States. And like, if you start to view them that way, that that's like a baseline thing about them, a lot of this makes much more sense because that's what they're doing is they're, you know, destroying this country bit by bit. But I think it's their 
goal. It's not just like a secondary ambition. And I think it's certainly something Russia appreciates, something a lot of uh, the U.S.'s enemies uh, appreciate. And it's something a lot of the most evil, malevolent kleptocrats and plutocrats appreciate and see a potential benefit from, especially as climate change uh, causes, you know, a kind of reevaluation of resources, land, um, that sort of thing. You know, it scares the hell out of me. I, I hope it really doesn't happen. I hope I'm like 100 percent wrong here. But so far, I haven't been. So, Well, you're not wrong about the way that he's been able to be one step ahead of the law forever, and he still is, and how he's been able to corrupt the law. The latest that I've heard now is that I was always wondering why the new Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, dropped this case that was apparently very solid that Cy Vance Jr. had put together. They'd got the, um, through a lot of efforts, and in, including the Supreme Court, they finally got Trump's Deutsche Bank documents, etc., and the, t the two really seasoned prosecutors thought they had a really strong case. And suddenly when Alvin Bragg comes in, having just been elected, he then mysteriously drops the case and no explanation. And the latest I've heard is that the Trump people got to him and uh, apparently, at least this is what's being alleged, that uh, he was having an affair and they said, We'd tell, we'll tell your wife about it if you don't uh, drop the case. So... The mafia well, thuggery continues. I mean, if you know about his affair, then they, then Alan Bragg didn't get anything out of this uh, equation because that, that info is out there. I don't know if that info is true. I mean, I'm still stuck on the Cy Vance part of it because Cy Vance is who let Don Jr. and Ivanka off the hook for fraud, um, you know, decided not to, to prosecute that case after he was given a donation from Trump's lawyer um, back in like about 2010 to 2012. And Vance had this long history of letting elite criminals off the hook, you know, Epstein and Weinstein and Dominique Strauss-Kahn and, you know, all sorts of bad characters. And he had a really long time to put this Trump case together and he had all this access. And so then he decides to retire and this new guy, you know, Al Alvin Bragg comes in. And to me, he looks more like the fall guy. And that's not excusing him because he should be doing his job. And, you know, allegedly all of these materials were prepared for him. But it also the people around him, other people in the DA's office should have expected this to happen because this is what Trump has been doing for 40 years and thought, well, how do we make sure Alvin Bragg is not going to be compromised or he's not going to get afraid or, you know, whatever? Like they should vet, um, you know, all of these circumstances and, and sort of prepare for the worst. And they didn't seem to do that. Instead, they, you know, kind of unilaterally blamed him and, you know, he took the fall and, you know, now I guess being reduced to an affair thing. I mean, I think it probably has a lot to do with, you know, dirty deals that were done under the purview of the New York DA's office for probably decades concerning Trump and Roy Cohn and that whole slimy circle. So the one uh, area that we haven't discussed is the Supreme Court, although you've talked about packing the courts. And it seems to me that the plutocracy found that a more direct way to take power uh, which they now have with this supermajority of ultra-conservatives, and that we're heading into a toxic brew of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism from the Amy Coney Barrett's. You know, we know that the Koch brothers and other plutocrats put up something like half a billion dollars of dark money through Leonard Leo to get the court the way it is now, and then they're starting to do what Stephen Bannon talked about, deconstructing the administrative state 
uh, by taking away the power of the F EPA to deal with global warming, etc. So that's all happening. So how does that fit into it? The uh, the combination of the plutocratic desire for in this new gilded age for a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism, and one of the ways it seems to operate, you know, in a normal democracy, people would vote for their interests, but they don't in the American democracy because they're sidetracked by tangential issues like abortion and guns, etc., which are, I think are encouraged by the plutocracy to divide Americans and turn them against each other so that they don't recognize what they have in common and who's really taking them to the cleaners. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, you know, I say that as a resident of Missouri and as, you know, I'm a woman who lost my bodily autonomy a couple months ago. You know, my state had one of those trigger laws where, you know, we lost our reproductive rights because my attorney general, who's now the Republican candidate for Senate, uh, signed them away. So, you know, that's my situation. And I certainly see how the issue has been weaponized. That's one of those issues that's, um, you know, leading to a lot of these secessionist and national divorce type movements like, oh, we can't possibly live together with very thought, very little thought toward the victims of this, which is, you know, people who live in states like mine. One thing that's frustrating about the, um, you know, voting for your own interests is that, again, my state was kind of a bellwether because we tried to vote for our own interests. Back in 2018, we had a bunch of ballot initiatives in which, you know, people all over the state, including independents and Republicans, voted for things like labor union protection, raising the minimum wage, and most notably, getting dark money out of politics, forcing all politicians to reveal who their donors are. So we voted those in. They passed overwhelmingly. And our GOP state legislature just said, you know what? No, we're, we're killing this. You know, the amendment was called Clean Missouri. And they're like, we're, we're just not going to do it. And so they just didn't do it. And so our vote didn't count. And I think that that is the model that the GOP is searching for on a national level. And it's certainly what the Supreme Court is doing, because that's an unelected body of individuals overriding the will of the people and overriding the vote of the people. Like in New York now, it overrode the local and state uh, gun control laws that New Yorkers had. So New York's got a little taste of what we've been living with uh, in Missouri here for a long time. Um, and it's really scary because those are lifetime appointments. That was one of the worst things about Trump being uh, in that office for as long as he was, is he was able to put in a lot of young people who will, if this system continues, uh, you know, be there until, you know, I'm a very old woman. They'll certainly be there as my children uh, grow up into adults. And that's a horrifying prospect to deal with because we have no leverage here. We have no way of removing them. Although I think if Trump you know, does end up charged for the Espionage Act, I think that any Supreme Court appointment he made uh, should be considered invalid because it was made by somebody who committed espionage, who was not loyal to the United States. So why should they have a say uh, in who is, you know, our, our highest judges and arbiters? Well, Sarah Kenzie, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Kenzio, who is a New York Times bestselling author, 
of The View from Flyover Country. She is also known for her coverage of the 2016 election and her academic research on authoritarian states. And she's a co-host of the acclaimed podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa and was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. And her latest book is Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump in the Erosion of America. And a forthcoming book out in September is They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the threat to journalists in our hemisphere in Mexico from murderous drug cartels and in Nicaragua from the dictator Ortega and his wife who have shut down the opposition press while jailing or forcing into exile hundreds of journalists. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Getting voted into the White House. Everything looking good to the people of the world, but the market family is my boss. The voters of the world keep supporting me, and I promise to take you very far. Other mothers better not upset me, or I'll send a million troops to die at war. To all you Republicans that help me to win, I sincerely like to thank you. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Natalie Southwick, who's the Committee to Protect Journalists, Latin American and Caribbean Program Coordinator, Prior to joining the Committee to Protect Journalists, she was a member of the Witness for Peace's international accompaniment team in Bogota, Colombia, and a reporting specialist with the Afro-Colombian Indigenous Program, and the editor of a website focused on Latin American news, and her work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Chicago Reporter, Insight Crime, Right on Watch, and elsewhere. Welcome to Background Briefing, Natalie Southwick. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Los Angeles Times has a recent article, not even Orwell could have dreamed up a country like this, journalists forced to flee Nicaragua en masse. And you're quoted in the article saying that Nicaragua has become a kind of black, an information black hole. In terms of the abuse of journalists around the world, and there's obviously a lot going on in places like Turkey and Russia, how would Nicaragua rate as one of the most hostile countries for journalists? You know, Nicaragua is a really interesting example right now of some of, I would say, the more creative ways that authoritarian leaders are finding to crack down on the press and really enact harsh censorship without some of the most overtly violent tactics that we see in some other countries. And that's not to say that it isn't an incredibly dangerous environment for the press. It absolutely is right now one of the most challenging in the hemisphere. Um, but it's it's been sort of constructed in a way that government authorities have really tight control over almost all state institutions, almost total media capture at this point. So it is almost impossible to do independent journalism in Nicaragua without running afoul of the law at this point. Um, and they've enacted legislation that on its face doesn't necessarily look like it would impact the press. Um, we're looking at, you know, foreign agents laws, cyber crimes laws, um, but those are being used in a way that limits the work of independent journalists. And as we can see from the numbers of journalists that have gone into exile, um, all of the different media outlets that have been 
forced to shutter or to move out of the country in the last couple of years, it's a really, really effective strategy for controlling information in and out of the country. And Mexico also is a very dangerous country for journalists. But I think the danger comes, obviously, some danger comes from the government, but most of it comes from organized crime, doesn't it? Absolutely. So Mexico is a clear, uh, you know, kind of the other end of the spectrum when we talk about threats to journalists. Mexico is by far the most deadly country in the hemisphere for the press. Um, so far this year, we've documented 11 cases of journalists killed in Mexico. Three of these, we can say for sure, um, it was related to their work. The other eight were still investigating to try to see whether there's a clear connection. But already in August, this puts um, 2022 at you know on par with the deadliest year that we've ever recorded for the press in Mexico. Um, so it is an incredibly dangerous place to be a journalist, particularly if you are covering organized crime, local politics, corruption, which the overlap of that Venn diagram is significant. Um, certainly a lot of the threats come from organized crime. But again, there are many parts of the country where organized crime, the line between organized crime and corrupt public officials is a bit of a blurry one. Um, so it really has to do more than anything else with this just widespread impunity that we see in Mexico when it comes to crimes against journalists and human rights defenders, whether we're talking about a corrupt local mayor or, um, you know, a drug cartel operating in a certain region, the people that want to silence journalists know that they're very unlikely to face any consequences. And that's why we keep seeing these attacks against journalists. But in terms of press freedom, not just in threats to journalists, journalists, but threats to publishers themselves, the Guatemalan government have just arrested the owner of El Periodico, which is the most popular newspaper in, in um, Guatemala, but it's in opposition to the crook in the presidency. And they seem to have some arrangement, both with the crook that runs El Salvador and the dictator and his wife in Nicaragua, the Ortegas, they just arrested Irma Alicia Velasquez Nimatush. She was detained at the airport in Managua and her belongings were searched and her documents were seized and then she was expelled. So is that, is that something that's going on? There's a kind of coordination between these Central American dictatorships? So Irma Alicia's case is, is interesting because, um, you know, she's obviously a, a very high-profile academic and researcher and writer, um, I can say she's not the only case that we're aware of, of um, an international reporter who has been stopped trying to get into Nicaragua in the last couple of years. Um, many of those cases haven't been public um, because people don't necessarily want to publicize what happened to them. Um, but in, in addition to the crackdown that we've seen affecting local journalists in Nicaragua, it's also been nearly impossible for people from outside the country to get in to report. So I think that that's, that's an important part of, you know, this censorship apparatus that isn't necessarily public knowledge, because for good reason, people don't necessarily want to say that they were stopped trying to enter the country. Um, in terms of what's happening in Guatemala, with most recently you mentioned the arrest of um, Jose Ruben Zamora, the founder and, and, um, and publisher of the newspaper El Periódico. 
what's happening in Guatemala is is kind of part of a pattern of really strong backlash from powerful politicians and individuals in Guatemala in response to this kind of anti-corruption wave of investigations that happened in the last decade with um, the UN-backed anti-corruption body, the CCIG. There was a lot of really exciting investigative journalism that kind of partnered with that um, those prosecutions and, and those investigations. Um, and in the last two administrations, we've seen both former President Jimmy Morales and now President Giamate respond in, in clear retaliation against journalists who kind of dared to uncover some of the corruption that is endemic in the Guatemalan government. Um, so less, you know, a, a, it's less a question of coordination and more, I think, what we very often see is the spillover kind of copycat tactics. You'll see something implemented in one country and then politicians in another country look at it and say, well, this is a good idea. This seems to be working in X country, so we're going to pick this up. And that's something we've seen with um, some of the foreign agent legislation that's requiring people receiving funding from outside the country to register as foreign agents, um, laws that have been introduced in places like Guatemala and Salvador against um, nonprofits trying to kind of get a closer look at their financial structures. Um, so it, it's, I'm not sure it's coordination necessarily, but there's definitely, you know, a kind of these copycat tactics that we see pop up in, in one country and then another. And again, I'm speaking with Natalie Southwick, who's a Committee to Protect Journalists Latin American Caribbean Program Coordinator. And prior to joining the Committee to Protect Journalists, she was a member of the Witness for Peace's International Accompaniment Team in Bogota, Colombia, and a reporting specialist with the Afro-Colombian and Indigenous Program and the editor of a website focused on Latin American news, and her work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Chicago Reporter, Inside Crime, Rio, On Watch, and elsewhere. So going back to Nicaragua, though, there isn't any opposition press left. The Ortegas have more or less taken over like Putin has done in Russia, right? Is there any, anybody left in terms of an opposition press, both in terms of print and TV? There's certainly a lot of journalists that are independent reporters or working with independent outlets that are doing their best to keep informing the public um, about what's happening in Nicaragua. A lot of them, as we've seen, are now working from outside of the country. Um, you know, dozens of journalists have gone into exile. Some of them are trying to continue reporting, whether they're based in Costa Rica or elsewhere. So there are definitely a lot of people that want to keep reporting. Um, obviously, there are significant challenges, both just from trying to survive in exile, as well as keep media outlets running. A lot of them are smaller, again, more independent outlets. They may be you know, publishing on a Facebook page. They may be reporting on Instagram. They're not going to be kind of big newspapers and more traditional media outlets. One of the things that's been particularly concerning to watch is the way that the Ortega government has taken over or shut down so many radio stations. Um, and again, I, I think it, it's important to think about this in kind of the context of there's a 10 plus year history of the Ortega Murillo family 
engaging in more and more, you know, what we would say media capture in Nicaragua, like a number of outlets, both television, radio, and, and some print outlets are run by members of their family. And so this is, this is a long running strategy, but in the last couple of years, they've really doubled down on it. And certainly over the last year, we've seen much more aggressive tactics from them to silence some of these other critical voices that they were maybe kind of looking, looking past and allowing to operate in the past. Um, so there certainly are still sources of information in and from outside of Nicaragua. It's much more dangerous than it was a few years ago. Um, and people are being very cautious about how they're going about reporting. Um, you're seeing, you know, La Prensa, for example, which is one of the one of the only newspapers that's left and is still kind of trying to operate as best it can, has decided not to put anyone's bylines on articles as kind of a security measure to help protect their journalists. So outlets, publications, independent reporters are having to really adapt to this increasingly dangerous environment. Um, but they're, they're journalists. They're going to keep doing their job. They're going to keep going out there and they're going to keep trying to report as best they can. But my understanding is the Ortega government has restricted newsprint coming in for La Prensa. That is a tactic that they um, implemented a few years ago. Um, and there was police raided the outlet's offices last year and have basically been controlling them ever since. The police raids on different um, publications, offices and, and radio stations as well has been another tactic that we've seen there. So that La Prensa essentially had to shift to online only publication because both they couldn't get enough newsprint to print the newspaper and they also physically couldn't get into their offices. So they've been working remotely um, since that raid. But that surely stifles their voice and their outreach, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, not forcing a, a publication to shift to only online in a country where there is limited access to the Internet. A lot of people don't have Internet access at home or they only can get it on their phones um, and they have limited data plans is obviously a way of preventing that information from getting to a larger audience. So there's obviously a lot more outrage expressed by politicians and journalists in this country about what's happened in Honduras and Guatemala and in El Salvador, but not much coverage of what's going on in Nicaragua where this family, former revolutionaries, have turned into vicious despots. And, of course, a lot of the American left were, saw them as heroes back in the days of the Sandinistas, is there any expiation going on in this this country? Are people sort of getting together and figuring out, well, we're wrong about these people and we got to do something to help the Nicaraguan people because this revolution has turned into a dictatorship? That's a good question. I think often there's a lot of kind of uh, historical hangover, I think, when you look at political views in some parts of the U.S. towards Latin America, like uh, a lot of people still think it's the Cold War. And so part of, you know, the, the work of advocacy organizations is framing what's actually happening in the region, not in, you know, the context of what may have happened 30 years ago. Um, and that's true across the board, whether you're talking about Argentina or Colombia or certainly Guatemala. It's 
people sort of have ideas of how things are that are, I would say, a bit outdated. The other thing, and this is this is a really good question, and I'm I'm glad that we have a chance to talk about this because one of the challenges with what's happening in Nicaragua is exactly that, that there is very little information getting out. Um, people who are still in the country are understandably really hesitant to share information about what's happening because it could put them at risk, it could put their families at risk, even people that have managed to leave that feel like it's safer for them outside of the country that may be in Costa Rica or in Honduras or or farther away, um, they still have family members that are there and they're really worried about potential retaliation against them. You know, there's a really strong surveillance state there and, and people have reported having, you know, police stationed outside their house, being followed down the street. Um, there's there's a very real possibility that they or their family members could face retaliation. And so one thing that's been a challenge for us as we're trying to document what's happening to the press in Nicaragua and certainly for other organizations that are trying to support people there is figuring out how we can convey the the gravity of what's happening without putting people at greater risk. And that's not to say that that isn't true in some other countries. Um, there's certainly, you know, threat of retaliation against outspoken journalists and their families in, in many countries. But the the extent of the crackdown in Nicaragua has made people, again, understandably, really hesitant to share anything that could put them or, or their loved ones in danger. And so I think it's also been it's been tough to accurately get that message to other people so that they understand what's happening simply because there's so little coming out. Not to mention, you know, people I think are overwhelmed by global crises right now. There's a lot happening around the world and um, and people have limited attention. And so that's that's an additional challenge on top of that. Right, and we have a former president who sucks up so much attention through his criminality and disgusting antics that that also distracts us from other stories like the one that we're discussing now, Natalie. It's something that we talk about the, you know, the sort of co-opting of the outrage cycle. It's something we see a lot in our work, particularly with someone like Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is extremely effective at taking up as much airspace as possible with, you know, mm -hmm. some offhand comment or some tweet um, to distract from real issues. It's the same with AMLO in Mexico. You know, there are a number of leaders that are are very savvy at using these tactics. And it's, again, an additional challenge to try to keep the focus on, you know, what's happening to journalists and the fact that their administration is refusing to make information publicly available instead of whatever they wrote in some tweet about guns this morning. Well, Natalie Southwick, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm, I'm really happy to have this chance to talk more about what's happening to our colleagues in, in Nicaragua and, and hope that people will, will pay attention to it. And again, I've been speaking with Natalie Southwick, who's a Committee to Protect Journalists Latin American and Caribbean Program Coordinator. And prior to joining the Committee to Protect Journalists, she was a member of Witness for Peace's International Accompaniment Team in Bogota, Colombia, and a reporting specialist with the Afro-Colombian and Indigenous Program 
and the editor of a website focused on Latin American news, and her work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Chicago Reporter, Insight Crime, Rio on Watch, and elsewhere. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.